Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland and with me today is a very special guest, our own photographical expert here at HowStuffWorks, Dylan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Dylan and I have had some really cool discussions about uh, the technology of photography and some different ideas around it. And Dylan has generously offered up some of his precious time to jump into the studio to talk about photo manipulation and photo editing. So this is going to be a two-part podcast. We know that starting off, we're going to concentrate on sort of the pre-digital era for this first episode. And then our next one will be kind of the various techniques and uh, motivations behind photo manipulation in the post-digital era, where we're no longer talking necessarily about physical media, but lots of zeros and ones instead. But uh, the the interesting thing to me is that photo manipulation has been around almost as long as photography has. Yeah. And and in large part because of the the limitations of photography, especially the early days. Mm -hmm. It was kind of seen... Early on as, okay, well, we have the foundation down now. How do we make up for all the things that we can't do at least yet? You know, you, you don't know in their mind if they knew that it was going to be a possibility in the future. But um, it kind of gave them the ability to uh, add to a photo what uh, cameras were not able to do at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Those early cameras were incredibly limited. And... Uh, you know, it, it helps if we take kind of a step back and look at a little bit of history. And by a little bit of history, I mean, I've created a timeline to kind of walk us through the early development, no pun intended. Okay, no, that was definitely a pun intended, of photography. So before we get to any photography at all, before we get to the point where we're recording light onto some medium, we can talk a little bit about uh, the camera obscura, which was not necessarily about recording recording images, but more about projecting them. Yes. Uh, and this is ancient technology. I mean, when you think about it, the basic technology was a dark chamber or room uh, mm-hmm. through which you have a hole in one wall. Yes. And then you can project across the uh, on the opposite wall. Yeah. And uh, what you saw on the opposite wall would be correct in perspective, but it would be 180 degrees, rotate 180 degrees, it would be upside down. Yeah. So I I have often seen this used as a way for artists who wanted to do a big wall mural, for example. They would have an image on one side, so it would be projected large on the opposite where they could actually trace things out. Uh, although not all artists were very capable of doing this, and it wouldn't be until the Renaissance, like even though the technology itself was thousands of years old in the sense that the ancient Chinese and Greeks were using this sort of approach. It always goes back to the Chinese. Yeah, it really does. It's always like, it's always like, uh, well, you have, you gotta look to the Middle East and you gotta look to China for some of these amazing developments that took a long time to make their way to the Western world. Uh, but in the Renaissance, there was an Italian writer named, uh, Gia Battista della Porta, who was really the first to use a lens arrangement in camera obscure. So it was more than just the simple hole or a mirror. It was a, a lens. And uh, that's where we started really calling it camera obscura. And 
Then you move ahead about a hundred, well, two hundred years to 1727, and that's when a, a gentleman by the name of Johann Heinrich Schulz. Uh, noticed something really odd. Uh, in fact, it was something that other people had noticed, but he was the one who actually put two and two together. We're talking silver salts here. Now, silver salts, when exposed to light, uh, get darker. And this is a major part of early photography. But for a long time, people thought that it was heat that made the salts turn dark. Now, what Schultz did was he had an experiment where he he had a, essentially a, a surface covered in silver salts, and he put a, a covering over it so that he could spell out a word in the silver salt and then expose that to light, and it made those salts turn dark. So he actually could spell out words using light this way. But he didn't have any way of preserving it. There was no way for him to keep this so that it would permanently have this word. In fact, as soon as you remove the the covering and the rest of the salts are exposed to light, everything turns dark. So it's like you have a temporary image. It's kind of like the Snapchat of its day. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> a very, a very uh, kind of simple Snapchat where someone would have to be in there with you. Yep. And so It'd be like, all right, you're going to have to look at this right now, because as soon as I turn on the light, it, this sucker, it's it's its time will be very limited. Uh, a, a latent image. Um, yeah. In in a way that, like, if you see something very bright and you close your eyes. Right. There it is for yep. a split second. Yeah. So it wouldn't be until the 1820s. That's when a, 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 a fellow by the name of Nisafor Nipsey. Thank you for pronouncing that. That's a guess. My French, uh, je ne parle pas français bien malheureusement. Je préfère anglais. So I am not very good with the French pronunciation. I haven't had French since high school, so uh, I apologize for butchering the name. But he developed a technique to use light in order to make uh, copies of engravings. And what he would do is he would take an engraving and cover it in oil, uh, and then he would put the engraving on a plate that was coated with a combination of lavender oil and vitamin of Judea, which is a light-sensitive material. And, uh, yeah, and he... Had the first successful image in 1816. Yeah. Amazing, right? Like he was able to use this and he called the process heliography, meaning from the sun to right. So it was close to photography, but he was calling it heliography. By 1826, he was using that process on lots of stuff like lithographic stone, on glass, on zinc and on pewter plates. And in 1826, he used a camera obscura and pewter plate to produce a photograph from nature. It was an image of, a, of the courtyard of his estate. It was taken from an upstairs uh, balcony and over the course of eight hours. Yes, it took a number of hours. Yeah, that, that was the real issue with these early approaches is that they had not perfected the chemistry necessary to have this reaction of light that would affect chemicals in such a way as to preserve an image. What's really funny is that the lens technology was much farther ahead from the start than the chemistry. Yeah. And a lot of early photography was really only limited by the chemicals involved. Right. Yeah, so you would end up having these super long exposure times. In the in some cases it meant that the the image you produced is otherworldly because in the case of this one with a, a courtyard, the, the light's coming from the sun. And it's over the course of eight hours, which means the sun starts in the east and ends in the west. So in the finished image, you have light from the sun shining from both directions. 
it's as if, you know, obviously we don't live in a world where you can really do that in a, in an instant. You would have to have this long exposure time in order to achieve that. So kind of a special effect just by the very limitation of the media itself. Yeah. The exposure times early on would, would make things like you said look very otherworldly. And it was just because it was out of necessity. That's what they had. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they didn't have any option really. Like it wasn't like, it had nothing to do with shutter speed or any of the other stuff we talk about with cameras. It had specifically to do with the limitation of uh, the, the materials, the chemicals they were using. Uh, by 1833, that's when we first start seeing the term photograph being used. Uh, and in fact, it was uh, apparently coined by a fellow named uh, Hercules Florence or Hercule Florent, if you want to be super fancy. Uh, he coined the term using it to describe a process in which he used paper with silver salts to produce prints of drawings. However, his work actually largely took place in Brazil. And because Brazil was so far removed from all the other areas that were looking into this, mostly in Europe, his work remained largely unknown until the 1970s. And I would like to note, it is, it is really interesting work. It's something to look into. He had some nice photographs. Yeah, yeah. And and our next uh, fellow who made a big impression on photography is one that probably most people have heard, at least heard the, the technology named after him. That would be uh, uh, Louis-Jacques-Mond Daguerre. Yes, the, the daguerreotype. Yeah. So he used the camera obscura and a plate of iodized silver, which would allow him to create a latent image of a scene. That's what Dylan was talking about just a minute ago. And he found that if you expose that plate to mercury vapor, the exposed parts of the image, the ones that had been exposed to light, would become visible. Uh, so it would develop. This is where we start talking about developing photographs. And that approach reduced the exposure times needed eventually from eight hours down to around half an hour-ish um, using this particular approach. But there was a drawback. If the developed picture was exposed to light, like after you've taken it, then the unexposed areas of silver would continue to darken and eventually the image would become impossible to see. So you'd have an image for a while. But it, it, again, imagine that you have a photograph in your hand and you take it out anywhere where there's light and it would just gradually become a dark picture. Like there'd be yeah. no, no, no way of distinguishing what was there before. Yeah. Like, uh, like it before you expose film and a film camera, if anyone's ever done that, you have to go into a pitch black room to do so because yeah. once you open the back of the, the light tight camera, uh, when, if you have that film exposed to the, you know, to light, it's, it's just going to go completely dark. You're not going to be able to take any photographs with that roll of film. Right. Now, Dylan, have you ever worked in a dark room? I have, yes. So what is, what is it like when you are doing something like that? Like, uh, you know, the, the, we've seen movies with the process where you've got the people with like the three or four different little basins filled with fluid and there's never any explanation of what is actually happening. It is, uh, it's an updated version of something like Daguerre was doing. The chemicals are a lot less dangerous. Yeah. Right. We're you're, not you're, using mercury you're, vapor. You're, you're a lot less likely to go crazy or catch on fire. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it's a, it's a process, but it's something that I think, uh, if you're interested in photography, you should, you should try the development process. Mm-hmm. Um, because from going into the closet to load your film, figuring out how to open something 
and put it in the back of a camera in pitch black is is a lot of it's a lot it's frustrating but it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. and then you 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 know even to the, the I don't want to get too ahead of us but the the photo the, the process of taking a photograph is a lot different because you realize you have like 12 to 36 um shots right. and so it's it's not like on your phone or on your digital camera which is which is great freedom but you you think oh I paid I paid money for this film and right. yeah so, it makes you much yeah, more selective it and does. careful and and not only that but I mean I'm, even that is a huge step from what we're talking about here where taking a single image required so much effort yes uh, just the not just the taking it but the developing of that single image took so much effort that obviously the composition of your shot was really important and if you mess that up. You're talking about a day's work in some cases. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of for one image. It's it's easy for us to forget that in the realm of selfies that we have today. Yeah. Uh, so I'll definitely be relying upon you heavily when we start talking about manipulation in this world. But to get back to the history, just a couple more points I want to make. Uh, so we've got Daguerre who starts solving the problem of this image immediately disappearing if you were to expose it to light by using ordinary table salt, actually. Sodium chloride. Yep. He put it in a water solution. He got your sodium chloride solution. He would use that to dissolve the unexposed silver iodide that was left on the paper. So that way, the exposed stuff had already been exposed. It's fine. You dissolve everything else, so now that stuff can't end up going dark and you're left with your image and you could fix it permanently because light can no longer uh, ruin them. And uh, eventually Daguerre would find a way of producing photographs on silvered copper plate, which was kind of his uh, his medium of choice from that point forward. Meanwhile, uh, there was another fellow, William Henry Fox Talbot, who was working on a different approach to create photographic images of scientific observations. The reason, all right, he was a scientist, not, he wasn't necessarily interested in photography originally. He was interested in science, but he had a problem. He couldn't draw at all. He had, like, he would try all these sort of things. To, he would just trace using a camera obscura. Didn't matter. He found himself incapable of doing that. I find myself sympathizing heavily with him. (laughs) I have a distinct lack of artistic ability when it comes to that. So he wanted to find a way to preserve scientific observations exactly as they were and record them in a way that would not require him to draw in any way, shape or fashion. So he started to look into a way to create photographic prints on paper, not using plates like Daguerre was using. So he used paper soaked in solutions of sodium chloride and silver nitrate in order to produce silver chloride infused paper. And if he exposed that paper to light, it would cause the exposed parts to become dark and that would create a negative image. If he took another sheet of this and put it against the one that had been exposed and then exposed that to light, that would create a positive image on the second sheet. And for the first time, you could get hypothetically more than one print from a picture. Yes, you were not limited to whatever the original plate was. Now you could produce multiple prints, assuming that everything stayed intact through this process, which was painstaking. It was still not easy to do. 
Um, and in fact, there were times where it took some experimentation with this approach to get it to work just right because often they were having uh, quality issues with transferring the image from the negative to the the uh, secondary sheet. And it wasn't until 1839 that Talbot felt that he had really nailed it. He had actually talked with his friend, an astronomer named Sir John Herschel, uh, in a way to fix the negatives using sodium thiosulfate, which at the time they called sodium hyposulfate. And found that that was what allowed it. And then, then he heard about the Gare and he thought, uh oh, because this is the era of everyone trying to get patents for things to protect their ideas so that other folks don't just run away with them. So he immediately rushes to publication to beat the, uh, the French to the punch because he knew that the French publication about Daguerre's work was coming. <laughs> so he said, well, I can't drag my feet on this and rushed ahead. Uh, and this is a story we hear over and over again in technology. It's not, yes. you know, radio was another big one like that. So television as well. So 1840 was the uh, March 1840 was really when the first photography studio that we know of opened. And it was in New York City. And it was uh, it was called the Daguerrean Parlor. And it was operated by Alexander Wolcott. And uh, so you finally had a place that was open to the public. It was no longer these uh, these scientists, physicists, researchers and others who were all interested in this concept. Now it was something that ordinary people could have some access to. It's the beginning of a long road to making photography very personal. Yes. And also the birth of our... Era of narcissism. That's probably being unkind. Uh, and around this time, we also started to see improvements in both lens design, uh, camera design, and the chemical processes that meant that development time had decreased significantly enough where you could sit for a portrait without having to stay absolutely still for three hours, which yeah. that's good. <laughs> you know, suddenly, suddenly portraiture became, uh, more of an attainable thing for families. Uh, and it became very popular pretty early on, um, especially by the 1860s to the 1880s. It became it was a huge movement at that point. And there were lots more things that happened from that point forward. Obviously, there was the development of calotype, which is a negative development process that Talbot had created. That made uh, photography on paper more practical by reducing the exposure times down to one minute. Pretty incredible at the time. Uh, stereoscopic photography became a thing. That's when you take two images uh, using cameras or lenses that uh, approximate the distance of a person's eyes. I made one of those. Oh, you did you? I did. And uh, uh, that was very popular during the Civil War. Yes, it was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You would take you would take these two images and then you would use uh, something called usually called a stereoscope, which was essentially a kind of a pair of glasses that held the two images at a certain distance from your eyes. So when you looked at it, it creates the illusion of depth. It's essentially a primitive 3D. In a lot of them, you could adjust the lenses uh, back and forth until the image came in focus for you. Right. Yeah, because, of course, not everyone is alike. Our our focal points are a little different. Uh, it's the same thing that we see now with various headsets where you have ways to uh, adjust the lenses so that if your eyes are a little set a little further apart or a little closer together, because a tiny difference from the average 
can mean you have a very different experience than someone who is closer to the average. You can still do the exact same thing on a digital SLR through the viewfinder. Everybody oh, yeah. can just set it up for because sometimes you'll pick up someone else's and and you're like, wow, this person has very different eyes than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you can get a very similar effect to this using uh, there. There are apps on phones now that do essentially the same thing that this is doing. Only they're using the uh, the the software in an app that like a Google Cardboard is an example, where you actually go and you buy a little cardboard headset. And you turn your phone uh, landscape side, you activate the Google Cardboard app, you slide it into the headset, and now you've got your own little virtual reality headset. It's based on the exact same principle as this photography. It's just in that case, you're talking about more like video animation, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. rather than still photography. But it's the same idea. Uh, then there was the wet collodion process, which I don't know if I'm even saying that correctly. Collodion, yes. Oh, excellent. Uh, that was used to make glass negatives and was much faster than earlier methods, provided that you were able to work quickly. Yeah, I mean, you it, it kind of birthed the digital, I mean, not the, it kind of birthed the portable darkroom. Yeah. Because if you had everything with you, mm-hmm. you could do it in like 15 minutes. That's which was incredible speed compared to the previous methods. Yeah, and you could have huge glass plates. Yeah, so um, you could make enormous negatives. Yes. Wow. So uh, the 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 challenge here is that the the method relied upon the glass retaining that that moisture on it that was used for the process, and if it dried out, then your negative was ruined. So you had to work quickly in order for you to be able to take advantage of this. But on the flip side, the process itself was very fast. So uh, that was a big advance. And then there was an even larger one a little bit later, which was the dry plate technology. It was developed by an English physician named Richard Leach Maddox in 1871, um, which eliminates some of the drawbacks of the glass approach. You didn't have to have the plate remain uh, wet for the whole process. That's that's kind of where I get to the point where I'm, I say, all right, I'm going to step back from the chemistry. Obviously, I could keep going to the point where a lot of the chemicals uh, uh, have changed into these safer ones that we use today and also the move from glass and paper to film. But the basics of what were needed for photo manipulation to come into play all existed by this time. In fact, photo manipulation was already a thing before 1871. Yes. Um, and early manipulation, sometimes it was, again, it was perfectly innocent. It might be that you take an image and you look at the negative and you realize from the negative that there is a flaw of some sort. So you might alter the negative a little bit before creating a print so that you can uh, compensate for some error that was made. Either the exposure wasn't quite right, the lighting wasn't quite right, or the subject moved or whatever that may be. Same thing that we do today. Yeah. So it's not necessarily <laughs> a, a a sinister or unethical uh, uh, motivation to manipulate a photo, but there are those as well. So if you look at some of the earlier edits, uh, sometimes it meant that you would alter the negative, as I had mentioned. Sometimes you would alter a print, um, in which case you might – in fact, early, because we were limited to black and white photography, uh, you had some people who would present – Make photographs, so make a make a print of a photograph or a negative rather, and then turn it over to an artist who might actually add color by painting mm-hmm. over the photograph. You want blue skies? You know, you, you 
put a little pan on there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the best solution to the problem at the time. So that was a type of photo manipulation. I mean, it was one that everyone was aware of, but it was still a way of manipulating the photos. Uh, you could also do things like you could do a composite, uh, uh, picture where, uh, that's a little bit odd. Uh, honestly, this was one of those things that I, n- I understand the basics of, but I don't know how it would actually happen. But generally speaking, you would use two or more negatives to produce a single print. And w- there were a lot of composites out there for, that were done for various reasons. Sometimes in order to include a person who was not able to be present at a particular photo session, uh, or to create a particular artistic feel. There's some really famous artists who composed amazing pictures using as many as 50 or more negatives in order to achieve it. And honestly, at that point, I'm like, "Uh, you guys are magicians. I don't know how this works. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, photo montage, photo manipulation goes, there are people like Jerry Yulesman who goes into a dark room, takes 50 negatives, splices them up with an X-Acto knife and makes a print. And you, you can't tell. It's like someone using Photoshop and they're a wizard. But it's all analog. Yeah. But early on, you had you had Matthew Brady, who I like to think of, and I think a lot of people think of him this way, as the first celebrity photographer mm-hmm. who had a studio, and, and he took portraits of almost every politician around that period, around like the Civil War era. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had two very famous manipulations, one that he did not do, but one of his photographs was used for part of it. I'm guessing that's the Lincoln one? The Lincoln portrait that is his, it's his head um, that Matthew Brady took that photograph. It's the same one that's used on the $5 bill. Exactly. And the body was of uh, John Calhoun, who was a Southerner. Right. Different person entirely. (laughs) And uh, it was to, it was because during Lincoln's life, they they felt like they didn't have enough heroic photographs of Lincoln. Yes, this is a, an iconic picture of what appears to be Lincoln standing in front of a desk. And uh, there's like an American flag in the picture. And uh, there's, um, you know, it's a it's a very striking photograph. It is. And what's really interesting to me is even back then, the amount of manipulation in that photograph uh, that there are papers on the table. And when it was a portrait of John Calhoun, the ta- the words on the table that you could read were strict con- constitution, free trade, and the sovereignty of the states. But the Lincoln version says constitution, union, and the proclamation of freedom. That's fascinating that they were able to get to that level of granularity when, I know. in the change. And, and you know, there, there are lots of different ways of achieving this sort of stuff. I mean, there was the you know, you could go to the negative and you could change the negative by splicing stuff together and then producing a print. Or you could do something where you're literally cutting and pasting, but you're doing it on the print. And then you take a photograph of the print, develop that, and that becomes your new photograph. So in other words, you can take two pictures and you literally cut out the image of something that you want from one, paste it over top the image that already exists, take a photo of it, develop it, and that could be a way of doing it too. That's so interesting because that's something that I think a lot of people did in elementary school is that they went through magazines for projects and yeah. they would cut out one part and put it over another part. It is very much like collage. It's Yeah, and, and there was the picture uh, Matthew Brady did of uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and that's supposed to be of him in front of his troops in City Point, Virginia. Yeah. 
but it's not. No, it's actually three different photos all meshed together. Uh, it's, it's the body <laughs> of, uh, Major General Alexander M. M. Cook. And, uh, then it's the head of Ulysses S. Grant on top of the body. So the body's on a horse. So it's Ulysses S. Grant on the body of this other general, major general. And the people in the background are not Union soldiers. They're Confederate prisoners. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, that's a very interesting photo, especially I think that's an early example of, um, I wouldn't say that it was meant to deceive as much, but of maybe misinformation. Yeah, you could argue, you know, you could call it propaganda if you like. It was really meant to uh, create, again, this heroic image. In fact, a lot of the pictures that for political manipulation are really about elevating a particular person to make them seem more iconic and or or eliminate things that elevated person no longer liked. Very uh, military based for the most oh, part. Oh yeah, a lot of lot of military ones. Uh yeah, there's also the the General Francis B. P. Blair being added to a group of uh of other generals, including General Sherman. So this is a group if, if you see the two different photos, you'll see one where there's a group of generals si- sitting together. And then the second photo, there's an extra general sitting way off to the right. Yeah, that was that other Matthew Brady image I was speaking of. And it's also really well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's he's he's definitely he feels a little ostracized. But other than that, it looks like he fits. It does. Yeah. Right? Maybe he wasn't. Maybe they felt like he wasn't as important. So he's a little bit over <laughs> like, in the corner. You're going to go sit at the kids table and let the adult generals talk about the war over here. Yeah, but it looks good. Yeah, it does look good. And that is also really interesting to me because it was clear that even early on, those photographers who were working with this medium and trying to create these composite images or manipulate these photos in some way already had an innate understanding of, if I want to do this and make it look right, lighting is really important. I can't ignore the fact that a scene lit from the left and a subject who's lit from the right that I've added in later are going to look wrong. Yeah, I mean, there even now there are a lot of of photos released by by um, very professional agencies that don't take as much of that into consideration as even some of these people 150 years ago. Right, and those images get torn apart on Reddit. They do. You can go to Reddit and you'll just see people saying, well, this is clearly Photoshop because if you look at the shadows, they're on the, you know, blah, 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 blah. You can tell that the, the, the lighting is higher and to the left instead of low and to the right or whatever. In some cases, it's really subtle and, uh, and it's people who have a greater attention span and better sense of detail than I do. <laughs> I'll look at it and go like, holy cow, you're right. <laughs> like I didn't notice it before. Uh, but yeah, there's still some other really cool ones that I could talk about. Like in 1870, a photographer will William H. Mumler used double exposures. So that's another way of editing and manipulating photos that we can talk about for a second. He used double exposure to create what people have dubbed spirit photography. Yes. Now, double exposure is exactly what it sounds like. It's exposing the same whatever photographic medium, whether it's film or a plate or whatever, to light twice. So you can create kind of a double image look. And usually one of those looks kind of transparent, uh, like a weaker image than the other one. And sometimes this was used for artistic effect. Like there, I saw one that was of an actor 
who in what in his in his regular pose, the darker pose, stood very tall and dignified. And in the second pose, he's bent over with his hands stretched out, kind of like a like a classic universal monster. And the first thing I thought when I saw it was like, that's a perfect photograph if you want to get across the concept of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. But it that was not what the intent was from what I was reading, but as I saw it, I just thought that was the immediate reaction I had. And uh in this case, uh, Mumler used double exposures on a pretty famous person, Mary Todd Lincoln. Yes. So there's this image of Mary Todd seated, and behind her is this, the ghostly apparition of Abraham Lincoln, and he even has his hands on her shoulders, and you can see through his hands to her shoulders. It's pretty yeah. effective. And it, it helps because he was so lanky. It yeah. really does kind of look ghoulish. Yeah, and, and again, this is just... Achieved through double exposure. Some people do this just for artistic effect. There have been cases where people have used double exposure specifically to mislead or deceive. But, uh, in this case, I wouldn't, I would, I would argue that it wasn't necessarily meant to do that. It was more of a memoriam for someone. At least that's the implication I feel. There were definitely ghost or spirit photographers who took it a different way and were yeah. claiming to get pictures of spirits. Yeah, um, like the uh, ectoplasm uh, photography as well. Yeah. Just that whole, I mean, that that gets Pat's photography, but there are a lot of pictures of people with cheesecloth coming out of their right. mouths. Right, Yeah, cheesecloth, that's like a, that's a go-to for hoaxers. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I promise when we get to, we'll probably save it for post-digital, but I got to talk to you about orbs. So uh, we'll chat about orbs in the post-digital section. But I've got my favorite story of, fo- no, it's not even photo manipulation. It's just so what I trickery. It's be. I bet it is. Does the year 1917 kind of fit into that? Fairies. Yes, we're going to talk about the fairies. Okay, so Dylan, you don't know this about me. When I was, but it's not a surprise because I was a kid once. When I was a kid uh, and I was going to elementary school, I would check out all the books on ghosts and monsters and folklore and I would read them cover to cover. And I would check them out again. We have that in common. Excellent. So I will never forget when I was reading about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and two young girls and a bunch of fairies out in the woods. And the two young girls were cousins. They were Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths. And they had all these photographs of them sitting around in, in glens surrounded by fairies frolicking about. Yeah, the Cottingley Fairies. It, yeah. was, it was taken near Cottingley, England. Famous, famous hoax. Uh, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, he was for a long time a hardcore skeptic, uh, but then suffered some tragedy in his life and started to turn to mysticism and spiritualists in an effort to answer questions that he could not answer himself. And there was sort of a decline uh, it was very kind of ironic from someone who presented a character who was as dispassionate and rational as Sherlock Holmes to end up embracing the idea of these two girls who had managed to capture images of fairies. And it wouldn't be until near the end of their lives that that they revealed that all they did was take illustrations that were from books and cut them out and paste them onto cardboard and pose the cardboard around them and take photographs. So they actually didn't do any manipulation at all. Yeah. They just set a scene. 
And it, I, I think it wasn't until the late seventies or early eighties that one of them admitted yeah. to it. And then the famous skeptic James Randi also said that he was like, well, these illustrations are exactly the same as these illustrations from this book that came out in 1915. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he had a book called Flim Flam where he talked about it a lot. Uh, James Randi did. But that was decades later. Yeah. Um, very much later. So that's, that's crazy because they sent it, that it, it fooled a photographer named Harold Snelling and mm. he said, quote, uh, that they were genuine, unfaked photographs of single exposure, open air work, show of movement and all the fairy figures. And there is no trace whatever of studio work involving card or paper models, dark backgrounds, painted figures, etc. Yeah. So he was he was right in the sense that it was single exposure. Yes. <laughs> but there was no movement. They were paper figures. In fact, there were people who who when they really looked at the photos, they said, you can see evidence of some movement in the human subjects, but the fairies who presumably would be moving much faster because some of them are like mid leap or flight or whatever. There's no blurring around them. And again, the exposure time at this point was still relatively long, much longer than, say, the cameras that would be used a few decades later. And so any fast movement would be very blurry. It wouldn't come across so sharp and crisp as these photos did. But they were very compelling at the time, and a lot of people bought into it, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, and I've got another one in 1924. We have a fellow by the name of Bernard McFadden who creates a technique called composograph. Do you know of McFadden? I don't, I don't okay. believe I do. So let me take you down the lurid, dirty, dirty path to t- tabloid journalism, Dylan. <laughs> Cause this is tabloid journalism at its most skeezy. So here, here's McFadden. He <laughs> is working on a, uh, a tabloid magazine called New York Evening Graphic, which some people nicknamed pornographic. <laughs> so what he would do is there would be news stories of various uh, uh, public figures, whether celebrities, politicians, whatever, sports stars, whatever it may be. And there'd be a story of some scandal. Like, again, this is a tabloid, so they're all about scandal. What he would do is he would take images uh, like of people's faces in these stories. Then he would pose... Um, Body doubles, sometimes mannequins, sometimes they were staffers of the magazine, into a tableau, take a picture, and then do a paste of the famous people's heads on top of the figures that he had posed, and then do things like a superimposed word balloon on top of it to express some statement that went along with the scandalous story. Wow, I mean, 1924? <laughs> 1924. I thought, how could it be skeezier than like today's tabloids? But that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's on, that's just right there. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen, have you ever seen any of the, um, the computer animated videos that come out of I, it's some Asian country, but it's, but it's the, yes. the retelling of famous story. Yeah. Same principle here, except he was doing it with still photography. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that, by the way, that that tabloid did not last too long. I think in the <laughs> early 1930s, it, it folded. It went bankrupt. But um, definitely was one of those uh, means of photo manipulation that gave the whole like, the whole concept a bad name. So there were the political ones we had talked about previously. Then there, there was this one where, I mean, it's just the beginning of a long line of commercial uses of photo manipulation and photo editing in order to 
sell papers essentially is what it gets down to. Yeah, or or you know, to kind of uh, cause harm to someone's image. Yeah, that, that I bet that was the genesis of that, and that's something that every time that uh, political campaign comes around every four years, sure, you you have to be extra weary of the photographs that start uh, circulating. Yeah, and and not only that, but you'll see. Uh, artists will use it usually transparently. I mean, the artist approach normally is not to create an image that you think is real. The artist's intent might be to make a statement about a particular person. I remember seeing one artist who had created a photograph and it was of a crowd out on the street. And then over top the crowd was this inky looking octopus with the head of William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously the comment being that Hearst is manipulating the public through the media. And and obviously he's not inky. No. So <laughs> nor yeah. does he have eight appendages. <laughs> so that makes sense. He had terrible taste in home decor. I'll say that. <laughs> As someone who's walked through the Hearst castle, this was clearly a guy who had so much money he just said, I like that thing, put it in my house. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it, like Baroque don't care. If it's if it's Baroque and Gothic in the same room, along with some uh even older stuff and some newer stuff, that's fine. <laughs> and I who have no taste would walk through and go like, y'all, this is tacky. <laughs> so we've we've talked about those. Let's talk a little bit about uh not not adding stuff in, but taking stuff away. Also it, that became pretty prevalent around that same period of time, the 1920s. That, yeah. that was a big period of time uh, for, uh, well, World War One, World War Two. That that kind of period in time. Yeah, we had a lot of um, of famous leaders who had uh, finicky attitudes toward their followers, and when they would get a little peeved at said followers, they would attempt to erase said followers from history entirely. Mm-hmm. Not just not just execute the person. That's not good enough. They have to erase the fact that that person ever existed, including removing them from photographs. In uh, some examples, both. Yeah. Some, sometimes you'd get removed from a photograph and you'd also be dead. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes they would kill you first and then say, all right, well, now that he's dead, let's go ahead and remove him from uh, all the, the, the official... Uh, Photographs, like press photos, things like that. Big famous example of this would be a photo that originally had Nikolai Yezkov, uh, or Yezhov rather, posing with Joseph Stalin. Uh, this is the vanishing commissar photograph. And, um, it's a picture of a group of gentlemen, including Mr. Stalin, uh, and Yezhov. And yes, I'm standing right next to um, a wall that leads right over to a river mm-hmm. and Stalin's immediately to his right. And then the retouched photo, he's gone. Yeah. Uh, an example of airbrushing. Yeah. Airbrushing. Exactly. So an airbrush is a tool that uses air to push through some form of paint or ink or whatever it may be in order for you to do some, uh, you know, analog hand controlled uh Art and yeah. in some cases it could be to hide something that was once there. Yeah, like if you use Photoshop today, it's the same idea as Content Aware or the Clone Stamp, just to take you know to put texture back into the photograph where something used to be. Right, and if you were really good at it, it might be difficult, especially on a casual glance, to notice that anything hinky has happened. Uh, there's some examples where you can look at it and think, 
huh, if I did not know that there once was someone standing there, I never would have picked up on the fact that this photo has been altered. There are others where there might be some clues, particularly with things that have fine detail. Sometimes that will be a giveaway. There's one with Hitler that's pretty noticeable. With Goebbels? Yes. Uh, well, technically, without Goebbels. <laughs> Uh, it was originally Goebbels was in the photograph. And uh, I love that every instance that talks about this says, we don't know why. Yeah, we don't know why Hitler got mad at Goebbels or what the reasoning was or why he decided to erase him from this photo. He just did. And it's not done particularly well because there's a blob where yeah. he used to be. Yeah, the the Stalin one is a little more convincing, mostly because the water in the background is a very light, like the sunlight is hitting it. So it's harder to see that there was once a form there. Um but uh, some of the other ones are a lot more obvious. By the way, the Stalin one, when I see the before and after pictures, to me, it just feels like one moment Stalin's there next to him and the next moment Stalin just pushes him off into the river, <laughs> which honestly, I'm sure there's a gif of that somewhere. Yeah, it's not that far off from the truth because he did have him executed. So uh, and I don't mean to laugh about that. I don't think it's funny, but I but it is one of those images where you just look at it and you, you know, it lends itself to that kind of thought. Uh, and Hitler and Stalin were not the only ones to do this. Mao Zedong did it. Yes. Uh, he had a famous photo where there was a, a supporter named Poku who was posed among, um, I think there were like, originally there were four people in the photograph and then three. Poku was removed. Uh, Poku fell out of favor. And you can tell that this one was manipulated too. There's uh, there's a background behind where Poku was standing that has mysteriously gotten really blobby and dark. And it's not the same color as the surrounding uh, wood in the structure that's there. So if you look at the first photo where you can see where the wood is a certain standard color all the way through up to the point where you can't see it anymore because Poku's in the way and the other one looks all blobby, you're like, something's wrong here. It's also weird when it's it, you, you you see like a lineup of people and then you wonder like, why are they standing like that? Yeah, why are why they standing so far off to face? the side? Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I talk about my favorite? Sure. It's the one of Mussolini. Have you seen this one where he's on a horse and he's holding a sword up to the sky? Yes. And uh, in the original, there's a horse handler. Yes. And, standing right at the very mouth of the horse, holding yes. the horse's head steady. And uh, he had him removed. And it's a good it's a good it's a good job. Right. It looks it looks legitimate. But it's not like the artist gave the horse buck teeth or something. <laughs> no. But just that idea, um, I think, is. The perfect amount of posturing for someone like that, they would definitely do something like that. And, and that's exactly what I was saying before with the idea that, you know, to try and make certain figures seem more majestic. Uh, you know, if if your if your identity that you are presenting to the public rely, relies on the fact that you are this powerful figure, you don't want it seen that you need someone there to control the horse that you're sitting on. You want it to look like you have that you know, that amazing ability yourself. So you don't want there to seem to be any sign of weakness perceived in any way. And uh, that was another great example of that. Um, did you did you know about the one from 1945 from a group of Russians who were erecting the Soviet flag of, above the Reichstag? Yes. And that in the original image, uh, one of them has on two watches. Yeah, he has a band on his right arm. That some people think was a watch, but it probably was actually a compass. Ah. So it probably was legitimately there. But the reason why the image is altered, if you look at the altered image, the band is gone off the right arm. And the reasoning was that 
if people saw that he had a band on his right arm, they would think he must already be wearing a watch on his left arm. That's where people wear their watches. So he must have been looting the bodies of the dead yeah. and put on another watch on his other arm. And they didn't want that to be part of the image. Truth is, he probably didn't loot the dead. He probably was wearing a compass on that arm and a watch on his other arm. That's a grim uh, idea to come to. Yeah. it's And it's interesting because... To me, it's interesting in that they were just trying to bypass a misinterpretation of the photo and that, in fact, the photo was probably already not indicating that this guy was a looter. It was just, well, to be safe, we should probably take that out. And it's also a very small part of the photograph. Yeah. I mean, it's this is not like a close up on the man's wrist. In fact, it you have to look really closely to notice it. But they were concerned, and so they did. And then the next one I have is actually, you, you mentioned him, uh, uh, Jerrion Ulsman in 1969, uh, one of the bo- most, um, most striking photos I've seen that, again, was presented without it being, you know, it's not meant to deceive or misrepresent. It's an artistic expression. And it is this amazing photo of trees that are suspended in the air, complete with root systems. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. And uh, if if you haven't seen his work, I would suggest looking at it because it's surreal and, and impeccably done. Yeah, it is amazing to look at. I, I was, uh, and I'm not, generally speaking, a visual arts kind of guy. Um, one of my other flaws. But when I saw this, I, I just couldn't help but really appreciate the mastery of the art that it would take to produce such an image. It's interesting because his wife is as good at Photoshop as he is in the darkroom. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. We'll have to talk more about that in part two. Yeah. Um, so there's some other examples we can give. Like there's there's the famous National Geographic uh cover in 1982 where they push the pyramids closer together for a better composition of Giza. Yeah. Yeah. The, the original photo was done in sort of a landscape mode. And of course, in order to put it onto a cover of a magazine, they needed to be more portraits. So they squished them together. So if you look, the pyramids are, they appear to be geographically closer to one another than they are in reality. And some people began to criticize the magazine for saying you're you're misrepresenting reality. You're putting this forward as if this is the way it looks and this is not how it looks. And in fact, um, they they got a new director of photography who said that um, everyone at Nat Geo thought that this was the wrong decision after it went up. They said this was a mistake, not a mistake in the sense of, oops, we did this, but more like that's something that we should not do because it doesn't reflect the mission of our magazine. And so they had essentially made a statement saying, we're not going to do that ever again. That's one of the last uh, pre-digital cases I can I can think of. Yeah, the most of the ones I think of certainly happen after the digital era begins. Like the really famous ones. Obviously, there are countless examples that are out there. But that's the last one I have of the the really uh, the notable ones in the pre-digital era. Now, there were some others that happened in the post-digital era that probably still use some old school approach. Like mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking specifically of a TV guide cover that we'll t- talk about in part two. But let me ask you this, Dylan. Have you have you as a photographer uh, dabbled in some of these techniques for whatever purpose? Almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
since I don't do photojournalism, um, I'm not trying to do anything that I don't believe is ethical. Right. Um, but let's say that, for example, here at How Stuff Works, I've taken photographs of the staff. And every once in a while, I like to take, we have these great big windows that mm-hmm. overlook uh, the street. And um, it's nice to pose people in front of them because there's great light in that area. And so I'll take a, a portrait of one of our hosts in front of that window. And then I'll, I'll upload it onto the computer. And I'll realize, oh, there's some cars on the road right there. I don't want those cars right there. <laughs> so you remove the I cars. I remove the cars. Uh, or uh, I took a photograph of a couple of our hosts in front of the apartment building across the street. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, the name of that apartment building isn't part of our brand, so I should just take it out. <laughs> things like that. It's just cleaning it up. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. And uh, things like that I know happen every day. I think that in the, now photo manipulation is probably a little bit like auto-tune, yeah. where you might not know it, but almost every major release you hear has at least a little bit of auto-tune. Maybe. Well, yeah, because the original purpose of auto-tune was to be unnoticed. It wasn't meant to be a, uh, a a new form of performance. That's how it got. That's what it got turned into. And then you had people who were behind AutoTune saying, "Well, crap! The whole purpose of this was to make make to correct little errors and get people closer to being on key and on tune uh, without it becoming a noticeable thing." And now you guys are 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 pushing this into something else. Not that that isn't legitimate. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's always important to recognize that art sometimes takes established processes or technologies and pushes them in new ways. And that's how you get new stuff. Yeah. You get the, the share effect yep. in auto-tune or you have Andy Warhol making prints until they deteriorate over and over again on uh, like a like a screen print over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like how auto-tune tries to find uh, the right note between two two different notes tries to get you to that right note. Uh, I think a lot of people put their uh, their photographs into Lightroom or Photoshop, and they just try and get it to the right exposure, mm-hmm. the right saturation, uh, color correction, uh, dodging and burning, which we can talk about in the second episode. Just small things like that that I think people have become so accustomed to that if you gave them an image right out of the camera, uh, they would feel like it could have been improved upon. And- yeah, this to me is really the fascinating part of this. The idea that as someone who's who's a casual shutterbug at best, like I I am not known for the making great composition of shots. I take pictures casually in order to capture moments to remember, and that's about it. Like that's that's about as far as my expertise goes in that area. I have a deep appreciation for people who have a, a great understanding of composition, of lighting, of uh, what needs to happen on the camera side in order to capture the moment that you intend to capture. And not only that, but what has to happen on the back end after the photo has been, quote unquote, taken in order for you to have the finished picture represent your vision, uh, especially as an artist. That's that to me is amazing. Like a lot. I think I I think I often would think of photography the way a lot of early photographers thought about it, that photography's purpose is to capture a moment uh, as close to representing it in as being real as possible, like like capturing that real moment forever and fixing it in a medium so it can stay that way for the end of time. And uh, I don't necessarily, or at least I didn't think about the fact that sometimes 
the the point where you push the shutter button on your camera is just the beginning. And mm-hmm. then you have another process that follows to get to the photo that you want that actually represents your vision. There are definitely two sides of it. I mean, to have the idea of, like you said, getting a photograph, saving it for history, and not touching it, I think is also very important depending mm-hmm. on the case. It's like when you get the audio of the State of the Union or if the president makes an address, you don't cut it. Right. Um, because that that can change context. You mm-hmm. shouldn't do the same thing um, with photojournalism, or at least most people believe that. Mm-hmm. It, it's like there was a famous example in 1970 at the Kent State shootings mm-hmm. that there's a picture of a body on the ground and there's a woman grieving over it. And there was a pole sticking out from behind her head. Um, and someone saw that photograph and took the pole out. And does it change the context of the photograph? Not particularly. It was done for compositional reasons to make it more aesthetically pleasing. One of the things that I, w- I learned when I went to college for photo- photography is never have a pole behind someone's head. It's right. just, it's just, you don't do it. It's distracting and. Yes. Yeah. But if it starts there with photojournalism, if you start by mo- removing a pole. Right. It, it could only escalate from there. Sure. Um, like, and you know, you get to a point where you're like, all right, it was a pole in this case. All right. It was someone's ring in this case, which changes the context depending upon the culture or yes. it was, you know, removing an entire person and erasing that person's presence from an actual historical moment. I mean, it, it does become a slope, right? It, and if when people find out it raises more questions than it ever really answers. Sure. Because then you start questioning the motivations behind the action. And then you think, well, what are your ulterior motives for making these alterations to this photograph? And, uh, you know, we've explored some of that here. In some cases, it was meant to mislead people specifically. In some cases, it was a, a matter of ego uh, in sometimes ego to the point of of megalomaniac <laughs> maniac egos. I mean, you, Stalin and, and Mao Zedong and the biggest egos of the 20th century. Yeah. Hitler and Mussolini. I mean, yeah. You can't. Yeah. I mean, those are big egos. And to the point where if you want someone gone, you don't just kill them, but you erase all record of them. That's insane, really, to me. But it's, as far as people who would have uh, uh like who would have a history of having photos manipulated. Yeah. It, it, it makes total sense. Yeah. That those would be the personalities that demand these things. And we've also, of course, there are plenty of examples of other artists and photographers who have manipulated images using pictures of people like those, uh, in order to, uh, lampoon or, uh, use satire or some other means to make a message. Like there's a famous one. Uh, not a particularly convincing uh, cut and paste job, but there was one where it's a picture of a of, of someone dressed up with an apron and they're holding a cleaver and they're about to chop the head off of a uh, of a bird. It's a bird that represents France and they've cut and paste Hitler's head on top of the person's head, thus representing Hitler's approach to 
attacking and, and, and conquering France. And it was meant as a political statement. And it wasn't meant to mislead, obviously. It wasn't, it wasn't, the intent wasn't to suggest like, look at this weird picture I got of Hitler. It was obviously to make a statement. Yes. Yeah. So lots of different reasons for this. Now, this is really neat because it does show the amount of work necessary to edit and manipulate photos. Sometimes it meant taking a risk that you might ruin the negative that you had created. Like Not all of these manipulations, when you had to go back to the ne- negative and make some changes, not all of them turned out great. And there is no undo button. Yeah. So we have no way of knowing how many potentially historical images we've lost as a result of an error made in the manipulation process. Uh, It may be that there are quite a few that would have been iconic photographs that we have never seen because of that. Uh, It's a different story in the post-digital age, and that's what we're going to cover in our next episode. So we're going to wrap up this one. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you. Uh, It'll be almost as if you never left when we (laughs) record the next one. And guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can always write me. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr. I use the handle techstuffhsw at all three of those, and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 